Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another wonderful and exciting episode of the Anthology of Horror. I'm your host and narrator, Springheeled Jerk. And today I'm going to bring you another episode, as promised, about a non-serial killer, but he would have been had he not been such a fucking douchebag. Uh, somebody that I hate, as promised, at the end of the Jody Arias episode, I spent a shitload of time researching those two fucking losers, so... I think you'll like this one. I put in a lot of time, so if you don't like it, then you can go fuck yourself. But speaking of going to fuck yourself, this show is often offensive, and if you don't like it, you can do what I just said to do, which was go fuck yourself and uh, take your negative reviews and cram them up your ass. So during the course of the show, to break up the sweet and smoky sound of my voice, I use advertisements for fake companies that don't exist that creatively are the property of Rockstar Games, and that I do not own the rights to. I simply use them to break up the show. And since nobody in their right mind will sponsor me, I have to pretend that I have sponsors by using these fake ads. And we'll be right back to the main part of our show after an advertisement or two from these fake-ass companies. Thank you. Dirt is everywhere. Filthy germs are everywhere. Death is everywhere. It's time to sanitize everything, including yourself. Make your life safe again with Poncha's Advanced Hand Sanitizer. During the day, you are exposed to literally millions of life-threatening germs and viruses. Use Poncha's Advanced Hand Sanitizer several times an hour and protect yourself and your loved ones. It's not neuroses, it's good hygiene. Poncha's is so hard on germs, it burns off the top layer of your skin, leaving you clean and fresh. And it's so strong, it will one day create a drug-resistant super bacteria that will wipe out half of mankind. Pontius, it's time to sanitize everything. The kind of water you drink says a lot about the type of person you are. Flow. It's time to take hydration seriously. Flow. Flow. Your local water is terrible. It's time to make hydration real. Flow. That's why we filtered it, put it in a fancy bottle, and are marketing it using famous actors. Flow. It's time to make hydration creative. Are you still drinking tap water? What's wrong with you? It's time to make hydration flow. Flow. Drink flow. Infused with oxygen and hydrogen. If you're active or at least want to appear to be, there's only one hydration solution. Flow. The date was October 26, 2007. Halloween drew near and the moon was full. Ghouls and revelers, zombies and princes, men seeking cheap laughs with cheap costumes, and the scantily clad, all had gathered along with Mark Twitchell in a long line descending the covered steps of Edmonton Shaw's Conference Center. Snaking into one of the vast halls, rock music pounded. Concert lights burst in shards of purple and green. Alcohol flowed. Loud talk and laughter rose against the backdrop of pumpkins, skeletons, and cobwebs. It was the Night of the Howler, the city's largest Halloween celebration. There was an energy in the air. The electricity of youth was channeled into dressing up, dancing, and losing your fucking mind. The party's annual costume competition was underway with a cash prize on offer. Thousands were in attendance as Mark Twitchell awaited the announcement of the winner. 
and his own chance at becoming a local celebrity. It was a weekend he had dreamed about since moving back to Edmonton from the American Midwest. Now his fantasy of winning the contest was close to coming true. At this moment, at the age of 28, Twitchell believed that he had it all. He was enjoying the first year of marriage to a wonderful woman named Jess, who was home, alone, and six months pregnant with their first child. His film career was looking promising. He had wrapped up shooting Secrets of the Rebellion, a Star Wars fan film that had taken over his life for the past two summers. He was now finalizing a script called Day Players, a buddy comedy that he hoped to produce with his, uh, shadily acquired investor funding. He had steady work in the sales to pay the bills too. The coming weeks would prove to be some of his happiest. But due to being an oh god, just due to being a massive douchebag, the next 12 months would see him embark on a journey leading from quiet suburbia to bedlam and mayhem from expectant father and filmmaker to serial killer suspect. Until then, a year away from his destruction, he was still an unknown cuck and fuckboy. A prospect on the cusp of potential greatness he'd worked so hard to achieve in the film business, in regular business, and now in costume design. A woman asked if she made his costume himself. He said yes. Some, another one asked how long it took. Some random girl walked past him and grabbed his butt cheek. Mark Twitchell Douchebag Supreme enjoyed being the center of attention. Eager admirers took pictures of him and his costume. And anybody walking past could see why. He stood nearly two feet taller than everybody else. His head high above the crowd, like that of a proud warrior, guarding the entrance to like a golden corral or something. His mask was hiding a beaming smile with every new inquiry. His interest in costume making had begun more than a decade earlier, in classes with his aunt, who ran the fashion program at his high school. In his spare time during those teenage years, Twitchell made a trench coat. He also designed his own Peter Pan costume. That's cute. Later efforts included Spider-Man, Darth Vader, and Wolverine, but if he was going to get noticed this year, he knew his costume had to be spectacular. He decided on a Transformers theme, since most attending the party would remember the recent summer movie release based on the series. He then settled on designing a costume of Megan Fox's character, I'm just kidding, of the character Bumblebee, the sporty yellow car that turns into a playful robot. If he pulled it off, he could win the Howler's coveted cash prize. In preparation, Twitchell had bought thick sheets of Shintra, a brand of plastic foam board that can be boiled in hot water or heated with a hairdryer to bend in various ways, much like Kydex, I guess. Over a period of two months, he cut through sheet after sheet of foam to shape the robot's gigantic body. He used a motorcycle helmet, parts from a Chevy dealership, parts from a Chevy dealership, props from his own Star Wars films, hockey gear, and everything was painted yellow and black. The costume required multiple fittings, adjustments, and the construction of large robot feet that amplified his height like stilts. What kind of masochistic weirdo does this, he asked himself as he toiled away. His pregnant wife could only shake her head as she watched her husband lock himself in the basement for hours at a time, fiddling with his stuff. He was like a big kid when it came to Halloween. It was his Christmas, so to speak. And after weeks of work, he was finally ready for his public debut. His sister, Susan, stood beside him in the lobby as the crowd grew in size. More pictures were taken. She had played along with his theme and came dressed as Mini Bumblebee. There was that such a thing? 
Her long brown hair pulled back with cute antenna, antennae. She was wearing a black and yellow striped sweater, fairy wings, and holding three sunflowers. It definitely looked like a last-minute costume, but it was in good fun and received a few chuckles from passerbys who noticed she was playing off her only sibling's massive effort. Fuck, man. I don't know about you guys, but I was, was I the only one that couldn't stay awake through any of the Transformers movies? They fucking suck. As the night rolled on, streams of partygoers circled and strolled around him. Twitchell didn't drink or dance because that could be considered as having fun. He chose instead to soak up the attention in the lobby, not even making it into the party, watching the party from the sidelines and away from all the drunks who could destroy his precious creation. But even in the lobby, a few people brushed past and accidentally knocked off pieces of his foot or other fake metal parts. Susan became an impromptu assistant at times, usually using tape for makeshift repairs on her brother's outfit. His friends soon arrived, which shocks me that he had friends, squeezing through pockets in the crowd. One of the first was some woman named Rebecca, a business student with whom Twitchell had met on PlentyOfFish.com. Although it was primarily a dating site, she had not been looking for romance and viewed Twitchell as a gay big brother, nothing more. After several get-togethers, Rebecca thought he was a bit arrogant, a loud talker, and way too much of a nerd. But she also discovered they both knew uh, Joss Hintonach, one of Twitchell's closest buddies. And the random connection made her uneasiness subside. They began hanging out as friends at the movies, at car shows, and coffee shops. Twitchell spotted another friend, Mike Young, bouncing along in his own robot costume. Hey, what's going on there, robot buddy? Mike shouted as he strolled past in a cardboard bender outfit from the TV show Futurama. He was off to dance, throwing the horns with his fingers as he rocked out to blaring music. In the hall with a group of girls dancing around him. Rebecca dragged her girlfriends over, and they too were stunned by Mark's elaborate doucheboy costume. What's it made out of? Somebody asked as she took a photo of him. And then two of them posed for another one together. Rebecca noticed how Mark Twitchell was loving the attention. He liked feeling like a famous person, she later recalled. But the huge party came off with a whiff of anxiety for Twitchell. After several hours, he was still waiting for the winners of the costume competition to be announced. He then began to doubt his efforts. Twitchell took off pieces of his Transformers gear, preparing to leave and give Rebecca a ride home. When the speakers pumped out the one word that he had been waiting to hear all evening, and that is bumblebees. Giant TV screens broadcasted a photo of his yellow costume as the announcer screamed the name of the winner. The crowd erupted in cheers of appreciation, and for a second, Twitchell didn't believe it. As the big wind slowly sunk in, his smile grew until his teeth finally made him look like an ugly-ass horse. He was elated for once in his life. The next evening, Mark Twitchell was still bathing in the afterglow. He dragged Susan to West Edmonton Mall to repeat their Halloween experience and hopefully win another prize. He stood inside a massive nightclub, once again dressed as the Bumblebee. As the night reached its peak, Twitchell rose to the stage. A large audience before him was left to decide the costume winner with a screaming vote. The chanting swelled as he gazed at the sea of hands and faces. The howling and whistling mixed in a blur of tones, and it didn't take long for the announcer to proclaim the crowd's favorite. Of course, it was Douchebag. The nightclub exploded in excitement. Twitchell's face bloomed once again in a sublime grin. He had secured two wins in two days. He was what he thought was a hero. 
Between the two Halloween parties, Twitchell had, however, won a Harley-Davidson motorcycle and thousands of dollars in actual cash. Thousands of dollars in Canadian cash, hundreds of thousands in American. He was quickly he quickly sold off the Harley because he has no taste apparently, and his costume, earning a total of sixteen grand from a handmade effort that cost him a mere three hundred dollars to build. He had a small fortune, adoration, and respect. Finally, he felt like he was on top of the world. What is DNA? How old is the Earth? What's holding me back? Are we all from the same tree? Why is science so confusing? How many women can I lie with? Can I pay money and have all of life's answers? Yes. 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 We speak 160 languages on six continents, including Antarctica. Kiflam. We are the Epsilon Program. You want to up your running game? Run like a caveman. Finally, shoes are getting back to nature. Toe shoes. You were born barefoot. Your ancestors ran barefoot. And now, toe shoes allow you to run barefoot but with shoes that look like feet. Slightly deformed, web-toed, brightly colored feet. Just like our ancestors that died at 25 of rickets. They're like wearing no shoes at all, as nature intended. Toe shoes. They're shoes for toes and twats. Oh, how I hate him. That is Mark Twitchell and not toe shoes. Actually, fuck it. I hate toe shoes, too. I said it. He was born in Edmonton on July 4th, 1979. Twitchell had shown a passion for costume-making, performance, and fantasy from an early age, reaching its pinnacle when he was nearly 30 and still dressing up in costumes like a whore to win money. Both of his parents were equally encouraging of his creative pursuits. His mother, Mary, was a career graphic artist. His father, Norman, or the Normster, as fuckboy liked to call him, was a maintenance worker for one of the city's downtown office towers. Both grew up in Alberta in farms outside of Edmonton. And Mary was one of 12 siblings. His parents met in their 20s and had now been married for more than three decades, and Twitchell viewed his childhood as a textbook upbringing, whatever the fuck that means. Best I can figure, it means, uh, like Jody Arias, with parents who did everything right and gave him a stable, consistent, positive house to live in, and uh, dare I say home. They were the typical suburban family, mom, dad, two kids, and a dog. His sister Susan had been a close friend for many years. Although they fought all the time as teenagers, as siblings normally do, Twitchell viewed his sister, four years younger, as an Amazonian. His words. She was tall, active in kickboxing, skiing, and mountain climbing. She was a tomboy and probably had a lot more muscle than he did. She was smart, so he says, but he wasn't that smart. Uh, Growing up, the family used to watch Star Trek The Next Generation after dinner, which led to Twitchell calling her Q for some reason, as a nod to one of the show's omnipotent genius characters. I've never seen it. It came as no surprise to the family when Susan decided to pursue her career in engineering. The family had always lived in the north end of the city. Their single-story home had been built in the 1950s when the city had rapidly expanded in every direction, creating a new grid of picket-fence neighborhoods. The small house sat near the outer edge of the Killarney suburb, 132nd Avenue, separating it from a nearby Catholic school. God damn, those Catholics can pick a location, can't they? Or us Catholics, I should say. I'm a former Catholic. Whatever. It was a home Twitchell would return to as an adult when the police were watching his every move. Again, foreshadowing a literary device. Despite how the or- how ordinary the family seemed, the Twitchells, childhood seemed pretty normal. His best friend, 
remembered how Twitchell craved attention, again like a whore, while getting noticed at school for all the wrong reasons. Kirk Pates met Twitchell in the fifth grade when they were both ten years old. Back then, Twitchell was still socially awkward, Catholic schoolboy with reddish-brown hair, big glasses, and ears that stuck out. Before he underwent a corrective surgery to flatten... Oh, Jesus Christ, I forgot about that. To flatten his big ears... Twitchell was often taunted for his nerdy appearance. One classmate recalled how they even nicknamed him Twitch Hell. He tried to diffuse the teasing with his wits, but... His various passions ensued, ensured negative attention, rather. Star Wars, video games, comic books, science fiction, drawing, and dressing up in homemade costumes. He was never part of the, uh, quote, quote, popular crowd. Never joined a high school group or sports team. He was what uh, most would consider to be an outcast. Twitchell appeared happiest when he was playing in a fantasy made-up world. He doodled in his notes, drew fantasy characters frequently, and after class he would rush home to hang out with Kirk, who had been transferred in junior high to another school. As teenagers, they would goof around with a video camera and make up stories. It soon spawned the creation of The Video, Twitchell's first effort in writing and filmmaking. As a compilation of various skits and short film ideas, Twitchell used the video to take established concepts or shows and change them slightly to make them his own, also known as plagiarizing. One summer video project concluded with a parody movie trailer for a comic book icon Judge Dredd. Twitchell tried to copy the character's signature helmet, which hid his entire face except for his chin and mouth by using an old street hockey mask and cutting away the jaw, because they're Canadian. While Judge Dredd was a character from a dystopian future where he acted as the police, the judge, the jury, and the executioner, much like Alexander Hamilton would, Twitcher turned him into uh, Judge Fred, like Judge Fred Flintstone, and played it up for laughs. I am the law, Judge Fred shouted in the video. Yabba dabba doo. Oh, God. As his family watched the trailer, Twitchell would giggle and his parents would burst into hysterical laughter. From that point, a reaction from them or any audience was what drove all the rest, Twitchell wrote years later in explaining his progression into filmmaking. Attempted progression into filmmaking. Let's, let's be realistic here. Later skits became more violent. A parody of Wheel of Fortune became Wheel of Torture, which had contestants spinning the wheel to determine which painful scenario they would be subjected to next. Kirk liked making these videos. Twitchell, however, often treated these efforts far more seriously. Kirk thought his friend was becoming too attached to his hobbies, more than any normal person should be, at least. Uh, they, he would start getting obsessed until they became all-encompassing ventures. If something interested Twitchell, he never seemed to go half-assed with it. He would go three-quarter-ass or nothing at all. The new hobby would completely take control of him, said his friend. When Twitchell felt inspiration strike, it was like a rush of blood to his head. Something he began calling his internal creative genius. It's modest of him. When it hit, he had to keep writing, filming, or drawing as his mind was flooded with new ideas. Twitchell began writing so frequently that his friends and classmates thought he was bordering on obsessive-compulsive. He wrote stories about a world like Earth but with little blue aliens. A girl who sat behind him in high school was handed an expensive 200-page report he had written on the Star Wars universe. An expansive, my mistake, not expensive. He wanted me to read it. He wanted me to get interested in Star Wars, she recalled. 
Twitchell also had a rebellious streak, though. He'd lie to get his way or tell tall tales Kirk knew couldn't possibly be true. Twitchell started stealing money from his mother's purse to buy junk food. He was arrested twice for shoplifting at a grocery store, but dodged a criminal record through the court's alternative measures program for first-time offenders. He was a bullshit artist and a liar. There's no doubt about that, said Kirk. In his 20s, Twitchell began sympathizing with darker characters as his love of fantasy storylines continued. He was especially fascinated with, of all fucking people, Anakin Skywalker in the prequel movies. Whose progression into Darth Vader is a major major turning point in the Star Wars prequels? Spoiler alert. It's so easy for someone on the outside looking in to judge why Anakin's choices were stupid. But it's different when you're the one in that position, he wrote on TheForce.net, a website hosting the popular online message board used by the most dedicated Star Wars fans around the world. He penned long and plentiful posts about Star Wars through the years on the same website under different accounts from time to time. He watched each prequel film at least six times when they were in theaters, and that should have been the first warning sign. He was even moved to tears. When the message boards began discussing the pure evilness of Anakin, who in one scene slaughters a bunch of children in a fit of rage, Twitchell wrote, I know, isn't it sweet? The pure calculated precision of it all, it's admirable how he manages to have the stomach for it. I wonder what was going through his head. He assumed other identities online as his interest grew in communicating with others through the rapidly expanding interwebs. On his favorite Star Wars websites, he became Grinning Fisto, Achilles of Edmonton, an allusion to one of his favorite mythological characters, in case you forgot who that was. And for months, he also identified himself as Psycho Jedi. It's cute. Twitchell enrolled in a diploma program in radio and television production at Edmonton's Northern Alberta Institute of Technology, NATE for short. By this time, his reddish hair had darkened, and he had ditched the glasses for context. He met a woman. Her name was Tracy Higgins. She was a few years older than him. And she was taking the same upgrading classes and quickly became his first love interest. They had a raw attraction to each other for some fucking reason. Despite protests from her friends that they were incompatible, the couple's romance was heated. But Tracy slowly noticed that her new boyfriend lied all the fucking time. Lied about his age and thing that seemed, things that seemed pointless to lie about, like details about his family. After a year together, she ended the relationship. Tracy felt she couldn't be with somebody she couldn't trust completely. He was devastated. Kirk and Twitchell stayed close buddies until their mid-twenties. They even lived together for a year during this time before they drifted apart. Twitchell was moderately successful in his sales job and liked to refer to himself as Logan at work. It's a reference to Wolverine. If you couldn't figure that one out for yourself. Who is, indeed, the brooding comic book character and member of X-Men, whose alter ego is James Logan Howlett. In 2001, as a recent college grad, Twitchell met an American broad through an online chat room. He quickly married her and moved to the American Midwest. Fucking jackass. The couple lived in Iowa and Illinois. He hoped the move was an opportunity for him to gain an American work visa while getting out of the snowy city in which he spent his entire life. But he ended up spending most of the time away, logged onto the internet, and started making fake online profiles, accounts for Satan, Jesus, women... His new wife would watch him pretend to be a girl online chatting with men just to fuck with them, and he thought it was funny. You sick bastard. Four years flew by, and Kirk barely stayed in touch 
with his old friends. Even when he returned to Edmonton in 2005, a divorced man seeking a new relationship and new start as a filmmaker, Twitchell was putting together a fan film telling everybody that he had decided to return to Edmonton because the Star Wars fan community was strong in the city and could help him complete his ambitious project. But Kirk had no interest in the film effort. He stopped hanging out with Twitchell altogether or even returning his calls. Twitch didn't attend, or Kirk didn't attend Twitchell's wedding when in 2007 he got married for the second time, his new wife, Jess, becoming pregnant within months of their nuptials. We had totally different interests by then, Kirk explained. Every time we got together, all he wanted to do was talk about Star Wars. It was a slow end to a close friendship that had begun in childhood. Kirk still fondly remembered walking to his friend's house as a child and playing basketball with Twitchell at the community basketball court across the street. It was during one of these regular get-togethers that Twitchell, then a teenager, had revealed a secret to Kirk, who at the time was his only friend. He told me that he had a hit list for people he hated, Kirk recalled. He was very descriptive about how he would do things to people who bullied him. For each of his enemies, Twitchell had imagined a unique way to end their life. He had come up with some pretty good ideas on how to kill people, said Kirk. He was going to get rid of a body in a trash compactor in the grocery store where he worked. That's not that good of a, not a good idea due to get sent to the main office. At the time, Kirk didn't think anything of it. He accepted that his friend was a bit weird, but he knew the teenage years were tough, and teenagers can often be prone to just fits of rage you can't do anything about. I'd like to tell you that it gets better, teenagers, but it fucking doesn't. I mean, the rage goes away outwardly. You just reflect it inwards and you hate yourself like that. Anyway, it just seemed like another one of Twitchell's bizarre comical fantasies, but his fantasies were far more elaborate and far more gruesome than Kirk ever could have thought. Sounds like you lack imagination, douchebag. Uh, we're going to take a brief break. Brief break. Maintaining a relationship can be trying, especially when she's getting fat and all you want to do is jerk off and play video games rather than listen to her mouth. Hi, I'm spiritual advisor and marriage counselor David Kabir. Come to my one-week retreat and I'll show you how to learn real closeness. How? By giving up what you're close to. You'll give up your possessions, including your significant other. Developed in the 1950s by Marvin Cuck. Cuckold therapy works. It worked for us. It was truly a defining moment in our trust and commitment when a well-endowed dude was ravaging her while I looked on helplessly. See? It's going to bring you closer together. After the trauma, you'll cling to each other deep in shame. And that's what a good relationship is about. Burying the shame as deep as possible. You have to start at the bottom and work your way up. After you see another man use your wife as a urinal, it puts your whole marriage in perspective. I'm David Kabir. Come to my one-week marriage retreat. Sign up today. Sometimes the things we do aren't so bad. We just don't describe them the right way. That leads to stress, anxiety, baldness, and death. Hi, I'm Allison Montana, thinker, writer, philanthropist. I want to help you access the most powerful force in the universe to achieve exactly what you want without changing a thing about yourself. That's right. I know it sounds crazy, but you heard right. I want you to achieve all of your goals without doing anything. When you unlock the power of rebranding, you can do anything you want. Yes, in our nation's history, nothing has been more important than marketing. It's the thing that built America, and now it's going to build you, thanks to the power in my incredible book, Unlock the Power, by Allison Montana. You're not jerking off. You're engaging in creative visualization and brainstorming. My book, Unlock the Power, by Allison Montana, will help you change your self-perception forever. Forever. 
procrastinating. That's what I call it. As the first snowfall was dusting sidewalks, a winter chill was taking over as 2007 neared its, its end. Twitchell was told of an exciting, controversial new show on television. It was several weeks after he'd won his Halloween costume prize. The novelty was fading, the money was being spent, and life was slowly returning to the normal routine. His friend Joss Nakataka had discovered the program. The web designer by trade recommended the show to Twitchell. It was called Dexter. You, you have to watch it, Josh insisted. I think you'll love it. But he brushed off his friend's suggestion, having always been skeptical of recommendations and especially hard to impress when it came to TV shows because he was a massive douche. He looked up to Joss as a big, lovable dude, but privately found him to be gullible and dumb. For one, he regarded Joss as religious. It was a passion that Twitchell did not fully understand. His interest lay elsewhere. Twitchell had just uploaded a sample movie trailer to YouTube for Day Players, which he had produced to help sell the potential film to the investors. He was thinking of his future, his wife Jess, and a child on the way, the fact that he needed to, be, have to, he needed to secure funding for his comedic feature, and complete post-production on his recently wrapped Star Wars fan film. He just wasn't interested in introducing another element into his busy life just yet. Members of his film crew, however, had joined Joss in following Dexter's violent storyline. Joss kept praising the show for some reason. That's another show I think fucking sucks. Thinking weeks of prodding would eventually convince his pal to take in the program. Finally, there came a day when Joss shoved a pack of DVDs into Twitchell's hands. He had studiously copied all 12 episodes of the first season of Dexter onto the pack of discs and presented it to his homeboy as a gift. With a sigh, Twitchell finally agreed to give the show a look. Back at a rented townhouse where Jess was nearly bursting as her due date neared, Twitchell chose to watch Dexter for the first time in secret. Because he was weird. He settled into his couch alone to give the show his undivided attention. In silence, Twitchell watched every episode in four days. He was mesmerized. Dexter focused on the bizarre double life of fictitious Dexter Morgan. He was a blood splatter analyst for the Miami PD and a vigilante serial killer going after criminals he deemed deserving, deserving of death. Like a loser boondock saint. He had little empathy and would keep a blood slide of each victim as a souvenir, because he was dumb. He liked to use a kill room, wrapping everything in plastic to contain all the evidence. All Dexter had to do was strap his victims to a table, perhaps torture them a bit, and then cut them into pieces, tossing their remains in garbage bags in the ocean. His knowledge of forensics and his presence in the police force helped him continue killing undetected. In one episode, Dexter stood in a comic book store, shocked by the realization that his killings had been a motivation for storytelling. On the wall, a poster was tacked up, The Dark Defender, a graphic novel based on the unsolved killings in Miami. The character had a hoodie pulled over his head. Most of his face was cast in darkness, except for his mouth and chin. He wore leather gloves and held an army-style K-bar knife. That's Marines, my mistake. Dexter was intrigued that his own actions were inspiring others. Twitchell was enthralled by the way that Dexter presented a philosophical debate about justified murder. Sure, Dexter was a monster, Twitchell thought, but he's at least he's self-aware. He appreciated the fact that Dexter was still a charming and witty character, even though he was deeply flawed. Yes. 
Episodes were watched closely and repeatedly. Twitchell then bought the Dexter series of novels by Jeff Lindsay, which had inspired the TV series. He saw how Dexter Morgan, in the books, wore a silk mask to hide his identity from his victims. He thought the show was better than the books. The show was better than the books, he said. What the hell? Twitchell admired the writing, though the show... Er, and thought the show was gritty and not too flashy. He adored the cliffhangers. Who likes cliffhangers? What the fuck? The main actor, Michael C. Hall, was impressive in the role. His Dexter was more believable and more dynamic. Twitchell wanted to see Dexter's pathology transform. He felt the books kept him too static as they were always it was always the same old sociopath. The books explained Dexter's dark passenger, his internalized desire to kill as a near supernatural force. While Twitchell liked how the show treated it more realistically as a psychological condition. The discovery of the TV show Dexter wildly complicated his personal life because as we'd said before, he uh, was was a bit of an obsessor. He uh, he liked diving deep into his passions until they completely consumed him, as he had done two years ago when his fan film dominated his schedule. Back then in 2005, Twitchell had met Joss through the message boards on TheForce.net. Twitchell had written a post asking for help with the fan film he was trying to create. He had written the script for Star Wars, Secrets of the Rebellion, with a friend from the Midwest, and having moved back to Edmonton, he planned on shooting the feature-length film at his old colleague, or at his old college, rather, the the night, in front of the studio green screen. He was also spending $60,000 of his own money to do it, hoping it would be a calling card for the industry. There was talk of top-notch costumes, computer-generated special effects, and plenty of lightsabers. It was a rare chance to get the Star Wars fan community in the region together working on a single project. Joss read the post and loved the idea he was in. On the set of the fan film, Twitchell became good friends with Joss and others he had drawn in for the Star Wars experience, such as Mike Young, Jay Howitson, Scott Cook. Some were associates from Twitchell's various sales jobs, while others were from the sci-fi community. It wasn't long until the four of them became Twitchell's go-to film crew and his tiny little circle of friends. David Puff, a local cinematographer and editor, was brought into the fold. Jason Fritz, an avid Star Wars fan and his roommate at the time, joined the cast to assist with the fight scenes. Together, they would formulate ways of making Twitchell's large-scale concepts a reality. They also bonded over their shared sarcastic sense of humor, their love of outlandish pop culture and fantasy. Some of them even carried lightsabers on their belt, breaking into pretend battles when the urge struck them. Growing up, they had been the fanboys on the fringe, finding acceptance not in the classroom, but in the online message boards, much like Edward Snowden. His words. Twitchell had become a standout star among them when his new friends gave him the nickname Twitch. He was more than thrilled. Really? The Star Wars project was elaborate and took years to film. Over the summers of 2006 and 7, actors and performers from across Canada and the United States flew to, the Ed- flew to Edmonton to star in the movie. News of the project spreading among sci-fi fans through the internet. Eventually, Jeremy Bollock signed up too. The cast was amazed because he was a living icon from his role as bounty hunter Boba Fett in the original Star Wars trilogy. Twitchell had somehow shanghaied the actor into making an appearance in the film. Twitchell's dreams were rising faster and higher than his crew could ever imagine. A confident man with charm that drew others closer, Twitchell imagined his film career looked to be heading to Hollywood. His his only demand was that he wanted to remain in control. His production company, 
Express Entertainment, spelled, of course, with an X, because it was the 2000s, would be behind his efforts, and he would be the producer, writer, and director, eh, the triple threat. He felt he was born to deliver provocative content to the masses and considered himself to be a young George Lucas. His crew was brought along to build the sets, hold the lights, work as production assistants, and follow his lead. As shooting wrapped up in the late summer of 2007, Twitchell declared how significant an achievement it had been. It's going to be a surreal experience bringing those long-awaited incredible stories to the screen, and I'm blown away that it gets to be me to bring it into the world, he wrote on his blog. It feels like destiny. Yeah, it sounds like you're an ugly-ass mom. He also wrote of being a believer in fate. So what destiny was there now, if any, in stumbling upon Dexter Morgan at the exact moment in life when he needed new inspiration. Twitchell needed a team of 3D graphic artists working for free to finish his masterpiece of Star Wars fan film production. He needed to convince investors to give him thousands of dollars, if not more, so he could film day players. And with 2008 approaching, he was mere weeks away from becoming engaged, or becoming a father, rather. He would need to keep working in sales to support his growing family with a regular income, but now there was Dexter. His love. The show engaged him deeply and ran the very real risk of taking up every single minute of his spare time. <sighs> okay, autism. He was confident his efforts would be worth it. Television networks had already come down to a Star Wars film set and interviewed him, boosting his crew's belief each time that he could become something big with all the media attention. He did. Just not what you thought. A lot of people take it very seriously, and they decide to go all the way with it, and make it screen accurate. Twitchell explained of his filmmaking philosophy to the CBS television, to CBS television, the nation's public broadcaster. At the end of the shooting, he became even more upbeat and assertive as another news TV crew uh, visited his production site. Word has gotten around that I'm making a $100 million movie for 60 grand in some production, and, uh, What? that I'm making a $100 million movie for 60 grand and some production and directing jobs have already come my way, he told CTV Network with a smile. I'm going to be very busy, and everybody here who has shown their work ethic with me on this project, I'm taking with me on the ride, whether they want, want to go with me or not. With Dexter Morgan now in the picture, none of his friends realized just how foreboding his, his declaration would one day turn out to be. Oh, God. At the end of January 2008, Twitchell became a daddy. Together, he and Jess had been thinking of baby names before they were even married. Ew. They settled on Chloe when the child was born. Jess let her husband pick one of the baby's middle name. One of the baby's middle names? What are you guys, from Guatemala? Not that there's anything wrong with that. Just they tend to have more names than most people born white in America. No disrespect. Even after she learned his choice was taken from the expanded Star Wars universe, at least... It was a name only hardcore, nerdy-ass fans would recognize. Oh, I recognize it. I guess I'm a hardcore nerd. Jaina, the daughter of Han Solo and Princess Leia. That's not that bad. He celebrated... It's not Jabba. <laughs> he celebrated the new arrival with a mass email. Nerd. His happiness was clear in his, in his writing style. She's remarkably easygoing, just like her dad, and pretty much popped out, Already presentable, with no cone head or misshapen body parts or anything, Twitchell wrote with his usual humor. What a fucking weirdo. Welcome to the world, kiddo. He attached a photo of Chloe with Jess and another of his mother, Mary, giving a look of wonder only someone holding their first grandchild could give. 
Well, that's fucking sweet. It was a joyous start to their new family for a couple who had been swept up in a speedy romance. In the beginning, having met on PlentyOfish.com, Twitchell had actually forgotten about their first date and was heading to the movies when Jess called him, wondering why he wasn't at the restaurant. What a douchebag. After the shaky start, Twitchell became enamored with her. Jess was smart with a university degree and three years older than him. He liked that. Yet, they appeared to be opposites. He was big-picture-thinker type guy, while she was detail-oriented. He was spontaneous, she was a planner. He saw how organized she could be, while his life had always been more like chaos. She didn't share his intense, intense passion for filmmaking at all, or for Star Wars, or for fantasy. Jess cringed at the thought of violence, and despite these differences, they fell in love quickly. On a stroll through a park only months after the meeting, Twitchell pulled out a ring and surprised her with a proposal. He had picked out a diamond with a platinum band worth about seven grand. He later joked that he had given Jess a promotion to fiancé. What a douche. That is something I would say, but it would actually be a promotion. The couple was in the highest of spirits. She moved into the rented townhouse while his roommate Jason Fritz got the fuck out. There was a small wedding with his sister serving as the best man. Their honeymoon took them to Costa Rica. Ugh. And Chloe was born just after their first anniversary. Early on, he had faltered. His first love, Tracy Higgins, had found her way back into his life through Facebook. And they had later kissed. Just once. He knew it was foolish and hurtful, and he regretted it. Twitchell wanted to keep a pledge to never lie to his wife, so he quickly confessed, and the couple worked hard to sail through their first rocky patch. The incident had been all the more all, all the more devastating for Jess, however, because she had been a couple months pregnant at the time and suffering through morning sickness and all those fun hormones that make pregnancy so memorable. The infidelity catching her totally off guard. Chloe was the grounding that Twitchell needed to finally put an end to his impulsive lifestyle and erratic decisions. He was supposed to be growing up and becoming a responsible father. But it wasn't working out the way that he had hoped. Twitchell was doing all the things that new fathers do, even expressing the same worries and concerns, but deep inside, his stomach was in knots. He wasn't actually experiencing any of the feelings for his child that he understood. Wait, what? He actually, he wasn't actually experiencing any of the feelings for his child that he understood other new fathers felt. He was acting. He wrote about his struggle in his personal writings, wondering what to do, but publicly he remained jovial. He had only offered possible hints through the years that he was different, hiding his emotions through humor and double meanings. Sometimes I just don't understand human behavior, he once wrote online, quoting... Of course, Autism Bot, C-3PO from Star Wars. Take a brief break right now, and I'll be right back. Thanks to the internet, your husband or boyfriend is masturbating at least five times a day. It's a fact. 80% of relationships fail because women lure in men with lots of sex, then turn it off and get fat. He's going to cheat, and quite frankly, you deserve it. <laughs> How can you compete with strippers and porn stars? How do you learn what men really want? Isn't it time you attended some classes at Nightlight's Continuing Education? Nightlight's offers courses that will teach you the techniques he's come to expect. Fulfill his fantasies without the messy divorce. Contact Nightlight's today and sign up for classes such as Rotisserie 101, Advanced ATM, and Coming Out Swinging for Beginners. Get your diploma in double P. Contact Nightlight's today. Men, face it, the male menopause is real. You're going to lose your virility someday. 
how about now? In the time it has taken to listen to this commercial, you're less virile than you were at the start. You've just wasted a whole lot of sperm. The decline has begun. It is time to fight back. As you start to go gray, get saggy, you're being upstaged by young bucks who will seduce your women and take your fortune. They need to know you're still the alpha. They need to know you're top dog and they're still a little pup. However, staying on top isn't just about jacking yourself with testosterone until you're humping the furniture. You'll need to go big. Showtime, who's boss? Do something really impressive and tell everyone about it. Hike Kilimanjaro, dog sled across Siberia, trek across Antarctica, raft the Amazon. You need an adventure travel service that can take Take you to the far reaches of the earth and give you the kind of experience you can boast about back home. Show them what kind of man you really are. A man who is fighting for meaning the only way he knows how. By showing off. It's time to take the menopause by the throat and strangle the life out of it. Contact Manipause Adventures today or visit menopauseadventures.com. The historic Hotel McDonald stood under Edmonton's downtown office towers like a French castle. Its copper roof rising to peaks out of limestone walls. Walking into one of the hotel's meeting rooms, Bitchell and his friend Josh scanned a gathering of a dozen or so business executives. The pair of young men weren't used to such an ornate setting, but Twitchell didn't let it bother him. He met each person's gaze with a smile and soon launched into a polished speech that demonstrated both his salesmanship and his obsession. In the previous weeks, in late April and early May of 2008, he'd worked his way through a screening process for Venture Alberta, an umbrella group of angle investors keen on hearing about new business opportunities. Out of 200 applications a year, about 35 were given the chance to pitch to the group. Barely a quarter of all entrepreneurs who entered the room would find somebody at the table willing to hand over their money. These were professional investors. Many ran multi-million dollar companies and they had heard hundreds of pitches before and were notoriously hard audience to impress. Twitchell and Joss, however, had come prepared. Their friend Rebecca had tried to help them since she was in business school. But Twitchell was convinced he could do it better on his own. Joss had spent a great deal of time designing a comprehensive website for Twitchell's production company and their fan film project. The public face of the business looked slick and professional, like they had been making movies for years, or they had a really good website guy. Fuck, man. As soon as he spoke, Twitchell projected enthusiasm. In a way, it was no different than selling electronics or office supplies, just like he had done a thousand times before. He flicked on a PowerPoint presentation explaining Express Entertainment and his new movie, Day Players. He smiled once again. The proposed comedy followed two movie extras and their often silly and outrageous lives. It was a lot like the uh, British sitcom Extras, starring Ricky Gervais, but in Twitchell's script, it had an undertone of sex and violence and it kind of flirted with the narrative. There were subtle references to slit throats, duct tapes, and being restrained to a chair. In an early scene, a woman complains about a man who had deceived her with a fake online dating profile. But most of the jokes in the film were corny and predictable. One scene featured a screaming, crazy athletic sex. Uh, those are his words. Waking up the neighbors. And a key gag involved an actor who fools somebody into thinking he's a criminal by using props from a movie set. I mean, as if people don't rob people with fucking prop guns. Like, that doesn't happen. Give me a fucking break. The Hollywood filmmaker portrayed in Twitchell's script was also adept at magic, able to correctly guess a playing card chosen from a deck. The secret to the trick required him to influence people's choices through the art of suggestion. 
and Twitchell compared his ability compared this ability to telling a story. Both magicians and filmmakers rely on persuasion, sleight of hand, misdirection, so on and so forth. A convincing storyteller takes you on a journey and then makes you feel like you're willing like you're willing it along when in reality you are not. Yeah, no shit. What the fuck? Why do you God, he had to explain it because he's so much smarter than everybody. I think anyone that can read and conceptualize a story knows that, you fucking asshole. Twitchell's investment pitch centered on securing plenty of cameos from Hollywood stars to guarantee a big box, box office draw. All he needed was financing, he said. To get this exciting project rolling, Twitchell paused. A big photograph of actor Alec Baldwin flashed on the screen. Investors started to get hard. Eyebrows were raised. Each potential investor had been handed a two-page document. We produce independent feature films on low budgets with high production value and generate profit from their distribution. With an investment of a million and a half dollars in the first round, we will start a production schedule of two projects per year for a five-year run that will result in an overall return on investment of approximately ten times the original investment amount, he promised. Twitchell was reassuring, as most con men are, explaining how his company used completion bonds or an insurance policy to protect investments if the movie project failed to be signed by a, dis- by a distributor. Getting investors signed, he said, also opened up access to six-figure government grants uh, and attached to the fact sheet were revenue forecasts. Based on his research, he envisioned Express Entertainment would generate $26 million in revenue within 12 months. The following two years would see the figures balloon to $33.9 million annually. Joss listened closely as Twitchell bullshitted his way through the difficult parts of the pitch. He came across like a seasoned performer, articulate, engaging, charismatic, and by the end of Twitchell's presentation, Joss saw a few investors pick up their pens and scribble down on uh, on the gold sheet for the company, showing that they wanted to know more. The pair walked out of the investor meeting feeling like they had won an award. Twitchell would repeat his performance two more times uh, as he headed south to the cities of Red Deer and Calgary to make the same sales pitch. The experience invigorated him. He began pushing everybody he knew to invest in his film project. What a douche. With such a positive response from professional investors, he believed he could get a deal uh, locked in pretty quick. And it couldn't have come at a better time. Twitchell had just been shit-canned from his latest job, where he was supposed to be selling outsourced IT systems to corporate clients. But instead, he spent most of his workday talking about Dexter and filmmaking. His work email account showed no messages sent to client nearly three months on the job. What a douche. Twitchell resorted to taking on another sales job, selling home security systems, as he waited for the chance to transform himself from a wannabe big-shot filmmaker to a real big-shot filmmaker douche. Joss was the first to respond to his urgent financing requests. He saw Twitchell as a glorious leader, his fewer, if you will, who was guiding him and the rest of the film crew towards dream jobs and untold fortune. Joss had been designing websites with his own company, Mandroid Inc., but now his friend was promising him a huge slice of the production service pie if day players went through. Seeing Twitchell work a room simply confirmed what he already knew: His friend could indeed be a star. So this poor bastard's parents handed over thirty grand in installments of ten grand. The next to fall in line was Twitchell's poor bastard brother-in-law. He had money saved up from working in the oil fields. Well, those guys love spending money because they make so goddamn much of it. 
On May 23rd, 2008, he signed over 30 grand, but he had a written strict... Oh my God. He had a handwritten strict condition that his investment was to be held in trust for the film project. Oof. Simpleton. With so much potential brewing, Twitchell began to believe that if he quit his job to focus on securing funding full-time, he could begin producing uh, this major film within weeks. The thought of it made his nipples hard. Twitchell talked about it with his wife, and while Jess was happy that his film career appeared to be taking off, she didn't want him leaving his day job just yet. She urged him to keep a steady paycheck coming in until he had all the money for day players in the bank. They had a daughter to raise. She wasn't wrong. But her pragmatism, of course, made him angry because he was a crybaby little child. Twitchell took her concerns as an ultimatum, an attack of his life's work, by pitting his passion against their relationship. You're a douche. With more money in the bank than ever before, Twitchell simply couldn't wait any longer after dreaming of this chance, and he found a way around the dilemma. He quit the job and kept it a secret. Having an open schedule would enable him to sign up the remaining investors he needed to much quicker. Jess would never know. Wow. Douche. The day he quit, his brother-in-law handed over his money and signed a film investment contract. Twitchell sit, sat down in front of the computer and logged into the message boards on the force.net. Under the Achilles of Edmonton account, he began typing a post with the subject line, How to Parlay Fan Films into a Career. It was a chance to brag and say goodbye to the Star Wars community that had embraced him for years. Sweet zombie Jesus, I did it, he wrote in elation. I did my homework. Made sure all my ducks were in a row before hitting up the big boys, and now we're here. He explained how this meant he was likely weeks away from being fully funded. It's my first multi-million dollar feature, and we're looking very realistically at getting Alec Baldwin and Jeff Goldblum on board. Yeah, fuck you, you are. Without my fan project to prove my crew had what it takes to get the job done and do it right, this would not be happening right now. It would be his last words that he ever wrote on the Star Wars boards. A lifetime of fascination and three years of writing more than 1,600 messages on the fan forums came to an abrupt and sudden end. He had a new life, a new career, and a new Mark Twitchell had emerged as a result. No one is going to stop me but me, he mused. Yeah, you and the fucking army of cops. <sighs> what a douchebag. Dressed in business attire, Twitchell jumped into his Pontiac Grand Am and cruised the streets of the city. He had nowhere to go, but he had... He had to at least get out of the house each day to convince Jess that he still had a job. On most days, he'd just end up at a coffee shop, dicking around on his laptop top, and working the numbers on his cell phone like a real film producer. Other days, he'd stop at his parents' house while they were at work. He had a set of keys. Fucking fuckboy. Lunches tended to revolve around fast food and greasy spoons. He'd break up the routine by turning to Dexter, either reading the books or watching more episodes. He was soaking up the series like a gay-ass sponge. At this usual time, he'd then drive home, creaking open his townhouse door to greet Jess, pretending to be recovering from another hard day of appointments and meetings he'd give Chloe a cuddle. Stay away from my kid, you son of a bitch. I wouldn't want that, you fucking creeper. Getting more investors signed on the dotted line wasn't going as quickly as anticipated. By July, with little new business coming his way, he was getting impatient. After lunch one day, he stuck his Wi-Fi card up his ass and logged onto the Facebook account, entering a new status update. Mark is getting pretty tired of depending on unreliable people to get back to him. Oh, you're so sassy, Mark, you big bitch. Over the following days, around the same time, he continued to post updates or crack odd, stupid-ass little jokes. Mark is set to evil. It was a reference to one of the Simpsons Halloween specials of, uh... Mark is always on. 
With no job, money was running out fast. He was forced to use around $1,800 from his business account to pay off debt. And now there was another financial worry on his plate. Jess hated the townhouse and she wanted to move. Well, you better get a job, bitch. Their rental lay beside the rail tracks and the freight trains would start up early, loud, engines rumbling, sending clouds of dust and toxic fumes into the sky as it chugged across the city. Toxic fumes? Come on. With a new baby, it was time to buy a house, get a mortgage, and stop paying rent for a home that Jess hated. Twitchell feared their living situation would continue to deteriorate if they didn't move, placing greater strains on their marriage. Their fights were already escalating. Talk of leaving the marriage became regular ammunition as bickering rose above calm reasoning, yet he knew it would be impossible to get a mortgage without a job, and Jess, who was on maternity leave, would be unable to secure a mortgage on her own. He couldn't exactly tell his wife the real reason why they wouldn't be approved for financing either. His lie would need more lies, because he was a liar. Twitchell drove to the mall and picked up his second cell phone, registering it under a fake name, and when the mortgage banker called, he'd answer the phone, disguise his voice, and pretend to be Jim McDougal, HR manager, an imaginary boss who would confirm Twitchell's fake employment details. Twitchell's checking account became flooded with $15,000 from his Express Entertainment account, money meant for funding day players. Another 5000 was transferred a week later. Bank statements were then forged to hide where the down payment funds had originated. It fooled everybody, Twitchell would later explain. Presto, mortgage approval. It's not like you still have to pay it back, dipshit. They're not doing you any favors. They make money on those. In her ignorance, Jess was pleased that her husband had, had delivered. It wasn't much, but it was a start. A little blue and brick bungalow, their first real home. It sat on a corner lot on the north end of St. Albert, and they moved in on August 1, 2008. For Twitchell, finding and buying the house was a relief. He could now focus on securing a movie deal. The whole ordeal had been a huge, unwanted distraction for him, and he had let the world know about it on Facebook. Mark is finally free to move shit forward. Randy Lennon had dipped his hands into plenty of business deals, but seeing Mark Twitchell tell a story in front of the room had hardened investors, had perked his ears. He was skeptical that the filmmaker apparently had a major star attached to the project, but the kid had balls, at least. The sheer confidence of the, of the man encouraged Randy to meet him for lunch. He wanted to explore what Twitchell really had lined up for the big movie project. And he wanted to put him in touch with a friend of his in the film industry who could advise the entire group on other investors that they could uh, pitch, their, pitch their movie to and whether or not the deal was worth pursuing. Meanwhile, another investor, John Pinsent, who had sat a few seats away from Randy during Twitchell's pitch, thought it could be an interesting opportunity as well. Over the course of the summer, he maintained contact with Twitchell, but the financial details of the film... Uh, of the film project never seemed to be completely clear. He was waiting on a formal pitch from the filmmaker before he would make his decision. Jess had known nothing about it for months. But then there he was. Dexter Morgan, the likable serial killer, dark and devious, the character that had captured, captured her husband's attention, something she only became aware of as they unpacked and settled in their new home. Seeing the books in DVDs, she assumed Dexter was a new interest of her husband's. Dexter novels were placed on the bookshelf in the front room, and written in the first person, each page revealed uh, Dexter's dark day-to-day -day interactions and uh, how they existed as elaborate lies. Being careful meant building a careful life, too. Compartmentalize, socialize, imitate life. All of which I had done so very carefully, I was a near-perfect hologram above suspicion, beyond reproach and beneath contempt, a neat and polite monster, the boy next door. 
But their marriage was still on shaky ground. Twitchell seemed distant. There was kind of a wall forming between them. He had set up an office in the basement. A spare mattress had been thrown on the carpet nearby, and Jess was sleeping upstairs near the baby. Twitchell's fake employment routine continued on in the new house. Every weekday morning, he'd put on his work clothes, pretend to drive to the office, and then reappear at home eight or nine hours later. Jess had no fucking idea what he was doing. As time opened up, between investor meetings, Twitchell found himself drawn deeper into the world of Dexter. It's not that deep, dude. He got his hands on the second season, and just like the first, watched every episode in under four days. By mid-August, he was sharing his love of the series with virtually everybody he knows. An old acquaintance in America had been in contact with him about raising funds for day players, but received an odd email that veered off into the subjects totally unrelated to those efforts. I've been catching up on that Showtime series Dexter. That's, that is far and away leaps and bounds the single best TV series I've ever seen. The writing, the pacing, the casting, the performances, all of it absolute solid gold. It just sucks. It sucks you in so well. It sucks so fucking hard, you mean. It's one of the most inspiring pieces I've seen as an artist, too. Engaging does not even begin to describe it. Shut up, fanboy. That show sucks. Twitchell told the man that he had spent the weekend directing a local movie. It's this intense, intense action thriller short about a guy who's sleeping with his best friend's wife and then brings him out to the woods to kill him during a hunting trip. It was fun as hell, and I really felt that I contributed greatly to maximizing the strength of the dialogue and creating one hell of a tense situation. His acquaintance had no idea if the story was fact or fiction. He had never heard of the project before and never received any more details. In truth, Twitchell was thinking a lot about broadening his range. Secrets of the Rebellion had stalled with non-existent post-production work. Day players needed serious financing. He wanted to try his hand at writing and directing his own short film, something small to pass the time while his film crew was to pass the time with his film crew while he waited on these two big projects. He had already tried his hand at science fiction and comedy, and he was curious about a genre he had been exploring a lot lately. That would be the psychological thriller types. It was a deepening thought. But he was running out of cash. His business account had dropped to under seven grand. really? Nearly all the investment money from Joss and his brother-in-law were gone. If he was going to make a short film, it would have to be on the cheap. The next two days became a blur as he thought more about a potential short horror film. Cruising in his maroon car, Twitchell found himself drifting between St. Albert and Edmonton, stopping in at coffee shops and convenience stores along the way. When he finally came home at night, he found himself restless. A heat wave was beginning. The August sun burned hot for the next four days. A late summer fever trapped under the canopy of lush elm streets, uh, elm trees oops, and blankets of clouds. Chloe, his daughter, was put to bed and Jess tried to sleep, but Twitchell stayed up as twilight turned to black. The silence of the suburban home was broken only by the light tapping of his fingers on the keyboard. He was on the internet again. He'd written something that was sure to provoke a response. But when his friends read his comment in the coming days, they kept their questions to themselves. Some thought it was a, an odd joke to make. Others did not know what he was referring to. And that was, of course, just after two in the morning, Twitchell had updated his status on Facebook. It was one sentence that would take on a far more sinister meaning as the months rolled by. He had written, Mark has way too much in common with Dexter Morgan. Fuckboy Supreme and Fuckboy Imaginary. And that's where we're going to leave it for today. This is probably going to be a multi-part episode, obviously, because I'm not finishing the whole thing today. We're already past my time limit of when you guys lose interest. So I'm going to go ahead and stop. But I'm going to take a brief break, and we're going to talk about statistics, and I'm going to sing the praises of fan bases in each city that have charted. Thank you. 
at Lombank. We're with you every step of the way. We sell your dreams. We're not a soulless monolithic institution. We are, but we use nostalgic imagery. It's walking into your dream home. You can't really afford it. We'll lend you the money anyway. It's kids graduating from college. With pointless degrees riddled with debt. It's happy picnics on the beach. There's sewage in the water. Family portraits with everyone dressed the same. You look like twats. Canoeing in the lake. By the power station. Catching fireflies in a jar. And watching them die. Cheering at high school football games. The kids are giving each other brain damage. These are the things our lives are made of. Interest rates only 33.4%. Lombank. We're the American bank that truly more or less cares. About profits. You want your kids to be safe, so you give them a mobile phone. What are they going to do when they get attacked? Throw it at someone? Why not force the state to keep us all protected by arming everybody? The senile old lady in her home, the three-year-old on the playground, the priest in his church. We think everybody should carry weapons at all times. That way, nobody gets hurt. It's a proven fact. Where there's more guns, there are less shootings. Vote yes on Proposition 45. Mandatory concealed carry for everybody. The nuclear deterrent won the Cold War. Let's use the same logic and win the war on crime. Proposition 45. Teach your kids to protect themselves. All right, so the top 10 list of countries that listen to the show are United States, Canada, United Kingdom, Australia, Germany, New Zealand, Sudan, Sweden, Ireland, and Jamaica. Thank you guys for continuing to make this show a growing, slow-burning success. I appreciate it. Let's talk about the top 10 cities. Oh, God. Of course, it's the one I can't pronounce, but I believe it's Hogue, Ohio, Atlanta, Georgia, Columbus, Ohio, Centennial, Colorado, Chicago, Illinois, Los Angeles, California, Dallas, Texas, Seattle, Washington, Houston, Texas, and Boston, Massachusetts. Welcome newcomers to the list. Thank you very much for uh, tuning in and checking it out. Please continue to spread the word if you'd be so kind. And uh, I appreciate you guys. Thank you. So if you go to anthologyofhorror.com, you will find links, I believe, to my Instagram and to the Patreon. And if you're so inclined or financially stable, if not, no worries. Please uh, cruise on over to the Patreon because I don't want to get premature here, but I believe I'm in the process of starting my own business. So hopefully that... Uh, that takes off. We'll see. It's a, it was in the preliminary stages the last like, oof, three, four months. I was putting together a bunch of equipment that I needed to get it done. And I finally did that. And now I'm uh, in the prototyping phase. If it actually goes through, I'll disclose what it is, but I don't want to jinx it until then. And uh, yeah, so hopefully that goes well. And anyway, Patreon is on the link, anthologyofhorror.com. You go there, it should direct you. If uh, you click on the crying orphan or something icon in the top right corner, and it should also take you to my Instagram, but if you don't want to go to that website and you just want to go straight to Instagram, go to instagram.com slash dukelandis17, and I would encourage you to send me a message. I will get back to you whenever I can. It might take me a year and a half, but I will do it. I will get back to you. I do read those messages. It just takes me a really fucking long time because I don't read very well. And just because I'm not on the, the Instagrams all that much. But 
Please send me your questions, comments, concerns via Instagram, and I will get back to you eventually. That I promise. And people that have given me requests, I haven't forgotten about you. I'm, it's coming. I promise you. I, I realize I've been saying that to some of you for over a year, but it's coming. Just like Santa Claus, it's coming. And uh, that's going to be it for today. I will talk to you guys next time with part two of the Mark Bitchell story, this uh, raging douchebag, hopefully the conclusion on the next episode, but I wanted to do this raging tool fucking justice because I hate him. And I wanted to delve pretty deep into his ass. You know what I mean? Not like that. In the asshole of his story. Whatever. But I'm just digging myself a hole here. Until next time, kids, stay spooky.